through the book of Nehemiah and Esther. I'm not going to go through every single uh, chapter, but I'm going to make some comments as I go. Why am I going through that? Well, I'm going through it. I should probably also go through Ezra because it's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Um, but I just felt to look at Nehemiah. Can anybody remember what Nehemiah is famous for? Building walls, yeah. He was the guy who built the wall around Jerusalem. Now, the history of it is that Jerusalem had, or the Israelites, had continued to disobey God. And as a result, they were attacked and taken off to Babylon. And the city was destroyed and the temple was burnt. And it all came to nothing. And then Ezra comes and rebuilds the temple. And then Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the walls. And I think it's really important because in our government and in our society at the moment, we're talking about building back stronger. Yeah, We've had the Prime Minister say after Brexit, building back stronger. We now have them saying after COVID, building back stronger. But I want to say that, how do we build back stronger, but on a spiritual level? Now, that doesn't mean it's not real, because I believe the spiritual is more real than the physical, and I think what we do in the spirit works out in what we do in the natural. But there's a couple of things I want you to notice, first of all. When Ezra built back the temple, he built back a smaller temple. don't know if you know that, but he built back a smaller temple. His task wasn't to create something that was grander and bigger and more magnificent. His task was to restore something and it was smaller. Now, we live in a world where bigger is better. And, you know, uh, when, when you read about, I, I really don't like shareholders and stuff, not, not the individuals, but I don't like the idea because the idea behind it is we want more money all the time. We want bigger, we want more, we want more. And there are times when God says, what happened there was really good, but I'm going to replace it with something smaller. Now, Nehemiah, he had the same thing. I mean, the walls that he built back around Jerusalem were not the same magnificent walls that Solomon built. I mean, Solomon was the most powerful. He was the strongest of all the kings. He had the most resources. And it says, when you went to see him and the splendor of what he had, you were in awe. So you can imagine when Nehemiah and his little band of people are taking the rubble and filling it in and it's finished, folks would have said, that's no Solomon wall. So we've got two instances here where the glory of something that was was not the same glory of what God wanted putting back. Now it's important to note that for both for Ezra and for Nehemiah, God called them to do the task. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to see if God takes a church leader of a thousand and says, I want you to build something that's smaller? Huh? God asks us to build things and to do things, and we need to listen to what he says, not follow the trends that we have. Now, Nehemiah lived around 445 BC. 
So that's quite some time ago, and that's a good nearly 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. His job was that he was a cupbearer, cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia. Now, a cupbearer had a really great job. Yep. They brought wine into the king, and before they gave it to the king, they said, we want to see if there's any poison in it. Can you drink it, please? Because believe it or not, in Persian times and in Babylonia, it was the, the most popular way to get rid of a monarch was to put some poison in his food somewhere. So even though it was a good job because he had the ear of the king, it was also an expendable job. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that there was any overtime pay if there was poison in the cup. But you get the idea. In, in modern life, we would probably equate that job to the job of a butler. Yeah? That that was his role to the king. He had a specific task to the king. So it's not a mega position, if you get what I mean. He's not like the second in control of the land. He's not like um, he's the part of the cabinet and such. His job essentially is to make sure that the king doesn't get poisoned from any of the food that's there. And I would imagine if the king does get poisoned, um, his life would be in a very precarious position. But it was a position of trust. Can you imagine for a moment, if you're going to get a bodyguard for your life, you want somebody whom you can trust, don't you? Yeah, they need to take the bullet for you in the same way that Nehemiah needed to drink the poison uh, to make sure the king didn't die. So you need somebody whom you can trust. And so there is a sense in which Nehemiah's position with the king was a position of trust that gave him some influence. And we'll see about that in a moment. What I want to focus on this morning with Nehemiah is about how God calls. You know, it's really important that we understand that God has prepared for us works. You know that. You know, maybe I should just repeat that. God has prepared works for each one of us to do. The works are different. They're not the same for each one of us. And here's the thing. Only you can do the work that God gives you. Why can only you do it? Because only you have the life experience, the character, and the temperament to do what God has designed you to do. If you look through anywhere in the Bible, you will see that intrinsic to the call is also the character and the preparation of the person. Only Moses could lead the Israelites out because only he was trained by the Egyptians, by the pharaohs to, to be well educated. And only Moses was the one who failed doing it himself and spent 40 years in the wilderness and he was broken and he was made a humble man so that he could actually do it. Nobody else could do it. God prepares. Believe it or not, everything that you go through in your life is a preparation for the calling that God has on you. Really important that we don't miss the call. Now, often, I always used to think, when people spoke about calling, I often thought that people would be going about their day and then in the middle of the day, they'd, they'd hear something like, Simon! 
And it's God saying, hey, Simon, I want you to do this, 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 this. Let me tell you, that can happen, but that is a very rare occurrence. God's calling works more in the way that it did with Nehemiah than it does in the terms of an audible voice that speaks. Now, I don't want to diminish the power of an audible voice because I know people where God has spoken, but I also know in 30 years of ministry that that is quite a minority and the rest of the folks hear an inner voice and have an inner sense of what God is saying. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because quite often we can dismiss a call of God because it doesn't come in a certain way. Well, I had no angel. I had no letter that was smoking and, you know, that when I opened it, it had this waft of authenticity about it. We dismiss it because maybe it's just a thought in your heart. What God often does is he calls us where we already have some kind of connection to that calling. I've spoken about Moses. Moses had actually attempted to free the Israelites before. I hope you know that. You know, we see the story of Moses when he's in the desert and he sees the burning bush and God calls him and says, I want you to go and free the people. But actually, he was already there. He was well-educated. He was a leader. But he tried through murdering someone to bring the Israelites out and that failed and he ran. So God calling him to go back means that actually there was already a connection for him in terms of what God called him to. Joseph is another one. You know, God called Joseph to manage the whole of Egypt so that there would be enough food in seven years of famine. Now, let me tell you, he didn't just do that in a day. He did it when he was Potiphar's servant. He did it when he was in prison. He managed everything well when he was a slave, when he was in prison, so that when God called him to do it for the nation, he could do it. Don't despise the gifts and the things that you have. Now, Nehemiah was no different, except with Nehemiah, it worked a little bit differently. His connection was something that was internal. If you read at the beginning of chapter 1 in Nehemiah, you'll see that Nehemiah says, um, people have come from Jerusalem, from Israel, and he asks them, how is Israel doing? How is Jerusalem doing? He has in him a compassion for Israel. When they tell him that it's not going well, he bursts into tears. And then we have this amazing prayer of Nehemiah because his heart was stirred for Jerusalem and for the Israelites and it was something internal in him that touched him. Now, actually, we see that quite often. You know, Mother Teresa's calling was like that. It was an internal voice that said, these people in Calcutta who are the poorest of the poor, they need Jesus' love given in practical ways and my heart goes out to it and I give myself to it. And you know, some 34 years later, there are some 4,000 people doing the same thing. What an amazing multiplication. Do not despise 
what God has put in your heart. The other thing that I want to mention as well is that don't dismiss it because it's impossible. In fact, I would argue very strongly from the scriptures that the more impossible what is in your heart is, the greater the likelihood that it's from God. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible that God calls people to do that they could actually do. Nothing. When you really look at it, there is no way Moses could have brought the people out of Egypt. It was impossible for one criminal to do so. There's no way that Joseph could have saved the whole of Israel. No way. He couldn't have orchestrated that with the famine and with the jail and with Potiphar. and He couldn't have done all of that. Abraham could not have been the father of many nations. I mean, Abraham is absolutely amazing because here is a guy who is barren and his wife is barren. They can't have children. And God says, you are going to be the greatest nation that has ever been. Can you just imagine from, and he says, I can just see Abraham, you know, God saying, he's going, I've got a question. Yeah, I'm barren, my wife is barren. Yeah, it's impossible. And then God says, yeah, it's going to happen. And what happens then? He's 75 at the time. So you're thinking 75, well, okay, we've got a rough chance if God takes away the barrenness at 75 of having kids. So what does God do? He says, let's wait another 25 years. Can you imagine at a hundred having a child? Yeah. Can you imagine? You see, the reason behind it is that God's promises are humanly impossible to fill. You cannot do it. If you can humanly do it, then it's not from God. Because, hey, we can do it. The thing that comes from God is the fact that we need to continually trust God to see it come to pass. We can't do it on our own. We need God to make it happen. He supplies all of the resources, all of the power, everything. It comes from him. We are the bystanders through which it comes. And here's, this is the, the, the amazing scripture, Nehemiah 2.12. And I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And I want to say to you that Nehemiah did a phenomenal work. And it all started when God placed something in his heart. And I want to ask you this morning, what has God placed in your heart? What is there in your heart that you kind of dismiss and say, man, I'd love to see that happen, but that's impossible. Well, hey, it's good news. It is impossible, but if God's placed it in your heart, it's not impossible. In fact, if God has placed it in your heart, it only requires you to be obedient in faith and it will come to pass. God places things into our hearts. Now, how do we know that it comes from God? I'll tell you why. There are two things that it will do when God gives you something. Either you will weep about it like Nehemiah did, or you'll do the other bit that, I can't remember, I think it was Nehemiah, 
where, yeah, it was Nehemiah. So the first time he wept, the second time he pulled out people's hair in anger. Yeah, because he came back to Jerusalem a second time. People weren't obeying the law. He was so angry that he physically beat them and pulled their hair out. Now, I'm not saying you should go around pulling people's hair out or beating them up. But I bet in your heart there are some things that make you weep that nobody else weeps about. I bet there are some things in your heart that makes your blood boil when you hear it and when you see it that other people seem to be immune to. Maybe that is the start of a call of God that he wants you to do something about that. I can't remember, was it William, William Wilberforce with slavery or was it Shaftesbury? I can never remember which of the two it was. Wilberforce. With, yeah, Wilberforce with slavery. Now, you know, Wilberforce, for 40 odd years, he petitioned this in Parliament in the UK. For 40 odd years. He had death threats galore. He was ridiculed, absolutely everything, and he never even saw it come to pass in his lifetime. But when he had died, a few years later, the legislation came in that he had pushed for 40 plus years. Wow. Why? It's impossible. But God can do it. And God will do it. Maybe you need to sit down with the Lord and with a sheet of paper and say, Lord, what is it that you're wanting me to do here? And don't dismiss it because it seems impossible. Have faith in God. I mean, at the end of the day, what's the point in God calling me to do something I can already do? The real power is when people see you do stuff and say, how are you doing that? Say, it's God. And then they come to worship the same God because they see this amazing, amazing miracle. Now, with the call comes an opportunity. I want to say to you that whatever God calls you to, it doesn't just remain in the heart because if it just remains in the heart, it doesn't bear fruit. But... God gives an opportunity. Now, I want to give you some context again. Nehemiah is in Babylonia. Yeah, you've got Babylonia here and you've got Jerusalem here and you've roughly got about 1,500 to 2,000 miles. Now, he didn't have an aeroplane. He didn't have a motorbike or, yeah. So travel would have been much slower in those days. If you Go a book before with Ezra. Ezra made the same journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And it says this, he says this. On the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. That was a four-month journey. Think about that. For Nehemiah and for Ezra to fulfill what God called them to do, they had to make a journey that was some 2,000 odd miles that would take them four months to achieve. That's no mean task. And I can already tell you that Nehemiah's job in cupbearer to the king, he needs permission to go. He is already in an impossible place. If the king does not let him go, Whatever is in his heart is not going to happen. He needs permission from the king to go. And the amazing thing is, God gives the opportunity. 
He speaks to him and he says, hey, your face is downcast. Why is that? And he shares his heart about Jerusalem. And the king says, hey, why don't you go and do it? Now, I want you to notice something, though, that when the opportunity came to Nehemiah, he was ready. One of the dangers in Christian life is that we believe God will call us to something, God will give us a gift, and we just wait for it to happen. It doesn't work like that. Did you know that if God has given you a gift to teach, you have to learn how to teach and you have to gain knowledge? It doesn't just happen like that. My sermons don't just come out of me sitting there in a daze and and they just waft through my brain. My sermons come because I pray, because I read the scripture, I read other things, I study. And through that, God uses my gift and he brings a word that becomes clear to me within that. But it's a lot of work. David Pawson, I don't know if many of you know him, he's passed away sadly now, phenomenal teacher, he said this, for every, um, how did you, I've got to get my brain right in this, because it was, it takes one hour of study, he said, for every one minute of teaching. That's how he invested into his gift. Now, Nehemiah, let me tell you, Nehemiah got himself ready even before the opportunity came. He got himself ready so that when God opened the door, he was ready to go through that. How do we know that? Let me say a couple of things. Firstly, he was clear about the vision. Yeah. When the king speaks to him in verse 5, he says to him, send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. This is chapter 2, verse 5. He is exceedingly clear about what he wants to do. He wants to go back to Judah, to the city of his fathers, and he wants to rebuild the city. So he's clear. This is what my vision is. It isn't some vague thing. I want to go to Judah to be a blessing. Yeah. Being a blessing is not a clear calling. We should be a blessing wherever we are, but it's not a clear calling unless we have some direction within it. Number two, he had already planned how he was going to do it. Because in verse six, the king says to him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. He knew how long it was going to take him. He'd calculated it. And then thirdly, he also knew what he was going to need. Because he says to the king, this is in verse 7 to 8, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, for the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. He'd covered all his bases. He said, I'm going to need wood. I'm going to need a place to live. I'm going to need passes to get through every checkpoint through all of the different countries I'm going through. This guy had had something that was impossible planted in his heart and he'd planned it all out. He'd sat down, says, well, I need to go for this length of time. I need these amount of resources. I need these letters. And this is exactly what I'm going to do. And God did it. Now, I hate to say, over the, the, the years that I've been in ministry, I've listened to people talk to me about their call of God, and I've not understood it. It's not clear. What's God calling to? Well, something. He, he's calling me to have a great impact. Say, That's fantastic. Where? 
Well, I don't know. How? Well, I don't know. When? Well, I don't know. I'm just waiting for God. Well, maybe God is waiting for you to sit down and say, hey, how am I going to do this? Maybe he will inspire your thinking to do something and then he will open the door. Because, I mean, isn't it crazy for God to open a door that we can't go through because we're not prepared? But isn't it exciting to think that sitting here in the church are 60 ministries waiting to happen because God is saying, hey, I've put something in your heart. I want you to think about it. How long is it going to take you? Where is it going to take you? What resources do you need? Sit down, plan it through. Think it through. Take it back to God. This is what I need. This is how it needs to work. Give me more wisdom and God will give it. And then all of a sudden, you're in this position that Nehemiah was in. I doubt the king would have let Nehemiah go had he not been clear. If he said to the king, well, I just want to go back to Jerusalem. How long is it going to take? Well, I don't know. And then at every checkpoint, he gets stopped. They won't let him go because he's not asked for the right letters. And when he thinks, oh, yeah, I want to build it, he's got to go back then to the king and say, oh, can I now have permission for some trees so that I can actually build the stuff? The king would have said, dude, you don't know what you're doing. Forget it. You know, God is not a vague God. If you want any more testimony about that, you look at God's instruction for building the Ark of the Covenant and for the temple, God is clear down to the measurements. He even says what color it needs to be. For the anointing oil, you need to get these spices and these quantities. God is superbly clear. And so I want to encourage you this morning, you have every right to say to God, I want clarity in what you want me to do because our God is a God of clear vision and without clarity we can't do anything. And I believe it's Satan that gives us this kind of vague mist so that we kind of drift to and through. There's an old poem from John Oxenham. I can't remember it fully, but it goes something like this. To every man, there is a way, ways and a way. And the high soul goes the highway and the low soul goes the low. And in between on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. And it's this idea that if there isn't this clarity, we just drift to and fro in our lives, achieving nothing. And if the devil can make the churches just drift to and fro and not achieve anything specific, then we will be in a world where we have little impact. And so I want to encourage you this morning. God has a plan for you. I conclude with five things and they will only take me five minutes. First is this. God can place his call into your heart. And I would hazard a guess he's already done it. I actually believe that when we are born again, God places the seed of our calling into our hearts. I think sometimes it takes time because that seed needs to germinate and grow and our experiences all help and, and it needs watering and things, but God places something in us. We need to ask God for wisdom, for discernment, but we need to be really careful that we don't jettison things that come into our hearts, but that we sift them through. Second thing is, only God can bring it to pass. Now that should relieve us, you know. 
if I had the stress on me that I have to build this church, I would have had a heart attack, a hernia, and a stomach ulcer by now. But Jesus said very clearly, I will build my church. It's not my job. I've got to be really careful that I'm doing what he calls me to do. And what he called me to do was different to what he called the previous minister. And his role was different to what he called the previous minister to that. We are faithful to what God calls us and with the gifts that he has given to us. Number three, God's plans are bigger than just our lifetime. You know, so often we want something that is for us to build our ministry and stuff. And you know, the world is littered with loads of those ministries that had a little explosion at some point, but they weren't really part of a bigger plan. And, and we need to look and say, you know what? God has a plan for us that fits into his plan that spans the whole existence of humanity from the beginning of time to the end. And we're on a timeline here somewhere. And what we do is just a part of that. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they were all a part of Abraham's calling. Or Abraham's calling was a part of their calling. They each had to do their bit in their generation. The apostles, 2,000 years ago, they were the initiators of a plan of God that has been ongoing for 2,000 years, and we are part of that plan. Number four, probably the most challenging. At the end of the call, we may be a butler once more. Now, I quite like that. You know, sometimes you see men of God who were phenomenal in ministry and then they retire and you can't think, what happened? Well, they've done their job. They've completed it. It's finished. When Nehemiah finished, he went back to Babylonia and he ended his life as the cupbearer to the king, not as governor, because he was a governor in Israel. Massive position. But when he'd built Jerusalem, when he'd done the walls, he went back and he said, hey, king, here's your cup. What a humility, hey? You see, it's about being faithful in our generation. It's about completing the task. It's about handing on the baton. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God. It's not about our wealth or our fame, but it's about the plan of God. And so I want to challenge you this morning that God wants to do great things through you. And you should be encouraged that he calls you for such a time as this. But we'll look at that when we move on. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that as we are here together as the body of Christ, here in Marsh Lane, that we have every single gift and call that we need to do great things. Just want that to sink in for a moment. God has supplied us with everything we need in this place. Everything. And Father, I want to pray that we would see and understand what our role is at this time. I want to pray as well that you would save us from what Jesus called the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians, which was the leaven of the world that says we need to live for the world. 
Father, help us to understand that the thing that makes this life sweet and powerful and fulfilling is being part of God's plan. And I want to pray this morning through every person here. And I say this quite specifically, not one of you is excluded. You may exclude yourself, but I will tell you with all the love in the world this morning that Jesus Christ, when he called you, he prepared something for you to do. It might not be the same as the ten-talent guy, the five-talent guy, but it is something as significant. And Jesus only berated the one who did nothing with what they were given. Not how much they did with it, but that they used what they were given. And so, Father, this morning, I want to pray that confidence that you will bring to pass that vision in our hearts. And for those that don't have a vision or a knowledge of a vision, I pray that you would give it this morning. I want to pray that this week you would begin to have a stirring in your spirit and in your heart to what God is calling you to. And that he will give you the wisdom for the next step and then the next step and the next step. And those of you that have something in your heart, I want to pray that it would come to pass, that it would be birthed, that whatever has been gestating in you over the years, that at the right time God will bring it to pass and that he would give you the wisdom to plan it so that when the opportunity comes, you are ready. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you. I thank you for everybody here. I thank you that they are a blessing to this fellowship and to this body in this place. And, Lord, I pray a blessing upon each one today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.